Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you're an aspiring author, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 150 of their students have gone on to get major book deals. CBC run a wide range of courses covering a variety of topics and genres. If you're interested in bringing your true stories to the page, why not join their six-week online writing a memoir course with exclusive teaching videos, resources, and writing tasks from best-selling author Kathy Rensenbrink. By the end of the course, you'll have written at least the first 3,000 words of your memoir and developed a plan for the rest of the book. Plus, all students will be given the opportunity to get individual feedback from one of CBC's expert non-fiction editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses on offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of writing a memoir or any other four or six week online writing course. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with the journalist and author George Packer. We spoke to George about writing his latest book, Last Best Hope, in lockdown, about his early ambitions as a novelist and about working at The New Yorker, The Atlantic and the journalistic climate today. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome, George, to Always Take Notes. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Could we start by talking about Last Best Hope? Uh, Where did the idea come from? I read in an interview that it was a COVID book and sort of born of being in isolation. Yeah, like a lot of people, I was trapped with myself, with my thoughts um, for, for most of a year. I couldn't travel. I couldn't report. I couldn't do what I usually do, which is go out and interview people and find stories in the world. But I had a lot of of, of thoughts in my head, and I did a lot of reading during those months, um, a lot of American history reading and books about America, especially Tocqueville's Great Democracy in America. And meanwhile, the world outside was um, headed for some cataclysm. It was a dramatic year, 2020, with not just the pandemic, but the protests and the election, the threat of violence, the attempt to overturn the election. So all of that concentrated about 20 years of experience and thinking into a few ideas that I wanted to set down. It's basically a pamphlet. It's a book. It's in that literary form that I think of as the pamphlet. And it's not my main form, but I do love the essay. I love uh, reading and writing essays. And so I, rather than a long 400-page narrative, which is what I've been doing the past 20 years, I thought I have to set down these thoughts while I have them in the middle of this crisis, which will give them some urgency, and try to figure out what I have to say about the state of my country and, and how it got to this point and where it might go. And this kind of central idea that you have of these four different 
unreconciled, maybe unreconcilable Americas, uh, the free America of Reagan, the smart America of Clinton-era technocrats, the real America of, of Trump, and the just America of uh, Me Too and BLM. Where, where did you first kind of conceptualize that as an idea? I began to think that the red-blue divide, which is so permanent and pervasive, it's been with us for those 20 years that I'm talking about, was inadequate because there were, there are little mini civil wars going on within each side of the red-blue divide. Trump was uh, an uprising against the Republican establishment, the, the elites and their orthodoxy, which has been the same ever since Reagan. Essentially free markets, low taxes, deregulation, the whole Reagan-Thatcher um, ideology had just become dogma, stale and hardened dogma of the Republican Party until Trump, who brought in a kind of unfamiliar nationalism, ethno-nationalism that Americans generally don't have as part of our politics. And and it was in direct uh, conflict with some of those orthodoxies of of Reagan's America, free trade, open immigration policies, um, and small government even. Trump was not running on that stuff. He, had, he ended up governing as a, as a rather orthodox Republican, but really the energy behind Trump was coming from the base, from the grassroots, and it was populist. And it reminded me more of European ethno-populism than of the main traditions of American politics. So for me, that was two different narratives. One I call free America and one real America, which is a phrase Sarah Palin used in the 2008 campaign to describe the, the good Americans, the white Christian small town rural Americans, and they became the heart of Trump's uh, movement. And on the other side, in blue America, there's also been a kind of civil war or maybe better yet, a an uprising that has won without much of a fight. And that's between, really between generations, um, between boomers and millennials, and between almost parents and children. The parents, meritocrats, educated, wanting their children to continue the family business, which is success, uh, through the institutions of success, higher education, finance, law, media, academia, and the children who came of age amid the post 9-11 wars, the financial crisis, the Great Recession, and Trump, and who really have said, we don't believe in your meritocracy. It's a scam. Uh, and in fact, America is a scam. The idea that we are you know, a light of, of, of the world, that we offer this vision of freedom and democracy to the world, that's, that's belied by American history. So. That those two narratives, which I call smart America and just America, are also uh, a kind of conflict on the blue side of the divide. And those conflicts are just as consequential and in some ways more interesting than the static war of attrition between red and blue America. So I wanted to tease out where those four come from. They've all arisen in the last few decades. And I think they all come from the same central problem which is how do you create a multi-everything democracy, an information economy that creates drastic extremes of winners and losers. So that's, those are the two trends of the last couple of generations. 
of the rise of a multi-everything democracy in this country with, with immigration from all over the world and with disenfranchised groups making themselves heard, and also the vast inequalities that came with the end of the industrial era and the rise of, of the information age. And those two have created a kind of anxiety and competition and even hostility between Americans who feel that they're losing out or that they have been silenced or that their way of life is threatened. And so those four narratives reflect, I think, the impasse we're at with the, the two trends I've described. And they don't recognize each other as Americans. There's a kind of existential denial and a sense of threat that really makes politics difficult. It makes it difficult to solve these problems through ordinary political um, procedures. In recent decades, and in particular in recent years, there's been you know a few books, a few takes on the contemporary American condition. What made you want to add to their number? I've written a few myself. In 2013, I published a book called The Unwinding, which is narrative journalism. It's a portrait of America over the, the same period, the, 80, the 70s and 80s to the present, but told through stories, um, stories of ordinary people, stories of famous people. Um, and it's sort of in the form of a nonfiction novel, you could say. Um, and I like that form. I, I'm a failed novelist. Uh, and so for me, nonfiction is a way to redeem <laughs> my love of narrative without having to actually invent. Um, this book is a kind, Last Best Hope is a kind of uh, distillation of all the th ideas I've been wrestling with within myself over the last decade or two, and an attempt to lay down some, both some truths and some suggestions. Normally, I, I don't see myself as a pundit. I don't go around uh, telling people in power what to do. But I felt I owed it to myself and to the reader to um, put my cards on the table. So by the end of the book, I feel I've laid out some ideas for how we can get out of the trap I just described and what it is about America and Americans that we can still draw on. Because right now, it feels as if the bank is, is uh, empty. It feels as if the well is dry. Americans have very little confidence in our country and in our history as a source of inspiration. And I wanted to, to go against that trend a bit because I think there are still things that give us reason for hope. And you were working on this book during COVID and, and it coming out on the heels of the Trump presidency. Were you ever concerned that you might be overtaken by subsequent events, you know, that the, another twist in the tale might emerge? And I suppose, how do you think this will be read in, in 10 20 or, you know, in the future, how do you think your analysis will age going forward? Well, my biggest fear, Simon, was that Trump would be reelected. I feared that as a, as a citizen, but I also feared it as a writer because much of what I wrote would be pretty irrelevant and theoretical during a second Trump term. Fortunately, Trump was defeated. And I think a lot of the ideas in the last part of the book are actually being pushed now as policy um, certainly nothing to do with my book, but as policy by the Biden administration under um, a rubric that I think of as the fifth narrative, the one that isn't um, of the last few decades, but that is a new narrative that I would propose called Equal America, which is drawing on our history and on our national character 
as a country of people who all feel they must be equal to others, that they, we all must have the same status, the same rights, the same opportunities, that nothing should be closed off to us, that no one should be born into their destiny for the rest of their life. That's an ancient American uh, passion, as Tocqueville called it. And I draw on it because I think countries are not social science experiments. They have certain core qualities that cannot be changed by utopian uh, ideas. And this is a core American quality that I think Biden is using in justifying spending on uh, on workers, on infrastructure, on the poor, on caregivers, um, and, and in pursuing anti-monopoly policies as well. So those are the core ideas at the end of the book, um, all under the rubric of Equal America. And how will they look in 10 years? I'm sure that in the day-to-day, year-to-year world of Washington politics, they will look relatively thin and irrelevant because nothing much happens anymore in Washington. Um, But I hope that they will still look viable as a long-term trajectory for the country. Um, We're not going, each side of the red and blue divide thinks it's about to win a total victory. Every election seems to bring the prospect of conquest, it never happens. We are permanently divided. Um, So we're not going to see a dramatic policy or political transformation of the country. It just doesn't happen that way. But I think slowly and incrementally, we might see a country that looks more and more like um, a country of equals, which we've stopped being. So that's my hope. And I I don't think the book will, will be dated if that's a direction that we continue to move in. The form of the book is a mix of social analysis, history and autobiography. Was there anything that you were looking to as an example for that? I mean, I read that you uh, read essays by Whitman and Orwell and others. I mean, I was sort of looking at a whole lineage of pamphlets, um, beginning with Common Sense by Thomas Paine and Whitman's rather obscure short book called Democratic Vistas, written just after the Civil War, which is a kind of mad uh, prose poem um, about the the promise, but also the grubby reality of post-Civil War America. Uh, Walter Lippmann's Drift and Mastery, which is a very lucid, rational, progressive era essay. Orwell's not very well-known The Lion and the Unicorn, which he wrote during the Blitz in 1940, and which essentially argues that for Britain to win the war, it has to have a socialist revolution. Um, So it's very much of its moment, but it also looks ahead to certain things that were about to happen in in Britain um, at the end of the war. And James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, which is a deeply personal, but also prophetic and political essay written during the, the height of the civil rights crisis. So all of those, to me, even though they're of their moment and speak to their moment, which is what a pamphlet does, they have literary qualities that make you want to read them decades or even centuries later. And so I'm not going to aspire to that level. I don't, I, I don't think my book comes close, but I did want to write it in a way that made it co- compulsively readable and something other than the usual five bullet points, um, 
opinion piece enlarged into a short book that we often get in the in the middle of periods like this. Could we roll back now, George, to the start of your career? Is it right that you grew up in California, parents were academics and writers, college at Yale, Peace Corps in Togo. Uh, what part along that journey did you know that you, you wanted to write? I always wanted to write, really from the age of about 12. Um, but I wanted to write the kinds of books I love to read. And what I was reading throughout my teens was mostly fiction. So I went through a period of writing horrible imitations of Joyce, horrible imitations of Faulkner, um, even worse imitations of Bellow, and kind of never lost that idea that a writer is a novelist. That was my kind of the prejudice that was somehow worked into me. And it was a destructive prejudice. But it takes a long time for some writers to figure out what they should write and how they should write. My life and my idea of being a writer took a turn with the period in Togo as a Peace Corps volunteer, which was a pretty rough and unhappy time of my life. And when I left Togo, I was 23, and on my way back to the States, I I stopped in Barcelona and happened to pick up a copy of Homage to Catalonia, by Orwell in an English language bookshop. I read it on the plane home. And somehow the first sentences of that book had a really powerful effect on me. Something about the the clear-eyed, straightforward, honest prose of Orwell that was not afraid to look at life and at himself and that didn't look at himself in a solipsistic way, but in order to get to the larger importance of his experience, all of that gave me an idea of, I don't need, writing does not mean getting lost in yourself. Fiction often had that effect on me of kind of disappearing into my imagination or into my feelings and and having no connection to the world. And I realized in order to get through this rough experience, I need to look at it clearly and connect myself to to the world, to the experience I had. And Orwell seemed to offer a way. Nonfiction offered a way. I had not read nonfiction. I didn't know what it was. I knew what journalism was. I knew what history was. I did not know what literary nonfiction was. We didn't read it in high school when I was a kid. Didn't exist. Um, I knew about 1984 and Animal Farm. I didn't know about Homage to Catalonia. But that book in some way was much closer to me, to my spirit than than Orwell's most famous novels. So I began writing a book about my years in Togo that came out in 1988. It was my first book. It was The Village of Waiting. And it was, for me, a kind of revelation that you could write about yourself, but also about the world and ideas and other people um, and do it with the same texture and and moods and energy of fiction. And I should have taken that as a sign that I am a nonfiction writer. But I still had stuck in my head the idea that writers are novelists. The rest are somehow less than writers. So I tried to be a fiction writer. I wrote two novels. They were published. Um, They were not widely read. They did not make me any money. And by my late 30s, I was looking at pretty much the dead end of a career as a minor novelist, except that 
by a series of accidents to some extent, I ended up in New York City right around the moment of 9-11 with an ability to write but no track record. But I got the opportunity to do journalism at the New York Times Magazine and then at the New Yorker and eventually... I covered the Iraq war for the New Yorker, and that was the beginning of my life as a journalist, which kind of reconnected me to that moment when I had discovered nonfiction in my early 20s. And now I realized nonfiction is literature too, if it's of a certain quality and a certain aspiration. And so that's what I've been doing for the past 20 years, but with, in some ways still with the head of a novelist even though my novels failed. Um, and so that's a very, maybe too long answer to the question of how I got into writing. Not at all. To track back briefly to your time after the Peace Corps, before you wrote your first book, what were you doing career-wise then? How were you making it work financially? <laughs> I was working uh, in construction, Rachel. I was uh, working on uh, basically home renovations with a very eccentric crew of hippie carpenters who took me in, even though I had no skills whatsoever. I think they were sort of interested in me because I had just come back from Africa and wanted to be a writer. And they, some of them were, you know, secret poets, but they were also extremely skillful carpenters. And they taught me carpentry, uh, at least as much as they could teach me. So for four years uh, during the 80s, I worked on uh, construction sites um, while writing The Village of Waiting. And when that book came out, I got a teaching job as a freshman, you know, first year writing instructor at Harvard on the strength of that book. And so that began about a decade of very badly paid uh, adjunct writing, uh, teaching of writing jobs, which is sort of what writers do when things are not going well. They take little uh, temporary jobs at different colleges and get exploited um, by well-endowed colleges and, and, and teach writing as, as well as they can. And I did that for about a decade before I started writing journalism, which paid enough that I no longer had to teach. Uh, what were the series of events then around 9-11 that then parachuted you into to doing this magazine writing? How did that take place? So I'd been living in Boston during those years of uh, writing the Village of Waiting and the two novels and working in construction. Um, my first marriage ended. I wanted a new start. I'd always looked at New York as both a alluring and dangerous and frightening place, but I wanted to try it. So I moved to New York in 2000. I was not young. I was 40. Um, so this is not like someone at the beginning of their career with all their prospects in front of them, it was more like giving myself a second chance um, in, the, in the middle of my career. And somehow living in Boston made me a complete non-person in the world of New York writing and journalism. It was as if I were living in Kamchatka or something. But once I moved to New York, if they see you at a party or if they hear about you from a friend of a friend, you exist. And because I'd written a couple of magazine pieces during those meager years of fiction writing, I was given a couple of assignments to do profiles and um, short opinion pieces for the New York Times and the New York Times Magazine. And they liked them well enough that they offered me a contract. But I'd also begun writing for The New Yorker, and David Remnick, the editor, 
realized he might not be able to keep publishing me because the Times Magazine was going to offer me a contract. So he offered me a contract. So suddenly all the stars aligned in a way that I could never have arranged if I tried. It was pretty much um, un- unpremeditated and lucky. Um, and that gave me the chance to write for, you know, the best magazine, The New Yorker, uh, that all writers of nonfiction want to write for. And so I felt extremely fortunate that David Remnick took a chance on me uh, in that second uh, round of trying to be a writer. And what were some of the things that you covered in those early pieces, the profiles and the, and the pieces for The New Yorker? Well, I still had a deep interest in Africa. So the first piece I did for The New Yorker was about a, a Brooklyn man. I was living in Brooklyn and still do who uh, was a prosthetics maker. And this guy was a classic Brooklyn character. I mean, he was a fast-talking, not very educated, but very quick-witted guy who, who made prosthetics in a little shop and fitted them you know, to people missing limbs in a little shop in downtown Brooklyn. And one day he read about children in Sierra Leone who were having their hands cut off by the the rebels in the terrible civil war in Sierra Leone. And he decided he would make prosthetics for those children. And he even brought a group of them over to Brooklyn to, um, to fit them with prosthetics and to show them that they could have a, a better life with them and then have them go back to Sierra Leone and show that the people there that you could live with, uh, with prosthetics. He and the, these children made for a very interesting and rather complicated story because, of course, none of it went as planned and blew up in everybody's face. And that was the first piece I did. And, and then I wrote another on the Civil War in Ivory Coast in 2003. And at that moment, while I was in Ivory Coast, the Iraq War began. I had written two or three pieces for the Times Magazine about the coming war. One of them was a profile of Kanan Makia, the Iraqi exile intellectual. One was a, a forecast of what different scenarios of a, a post-Saddam Iraq might be like. And all of that had brought me to David Remnick's attention. And so he hired me essentially to go to Iraq and begin covering the war. So the first really major piece I did for The New Yorker was a 20,000-word report from Iraq in 2003 from all sorts of points of view, the American military, the Green Zone, Iraqi, uh, Shia religious people, uh, young Iraqis. um, And so it was a kind of overall portrait of the occupation um, based on about two months of reporting. How did you go about learning to be a foreign correspondent, you know, doing these assignments abroad? Uh, I mean, I, I worked in Sierra Leone for two years. I was a stringer for, for Reuters there, so I know that place a little bit, and Ivory Coast as well. But how, yeah, how did you kind of learn how to, how to report as you were doing these big projects? I think the first lesson I had in foreign reporting was my Peace Corps years. Um, and by that, I, I mean, I learned to listen I learned to recede a bit and let the people I was talking to come forward to me and tell me their story in a way that allowed them to to breathe and to be comfortable and to feel as if it mattered. Um, And that despite the gulf between us, the huge gulf of culture and language and everything else, I was interested and even empathetic enough that they could 
trust me. And I, so I guess I learned to get people to trust me with their stories. Um, and your, the name of your show uh, is sort of a lesson to me because at the beginning, when I was in Togo, I was not taking notes I, because I wasn't there as a journalist. I was just having experiences. But by the end of my time there, I was taking notes and recording because I knew that somehow, some way, I was going to do something with these conversations. And that I, I, that was maybe the beginning of realizing I wasn't just there as a human being and a, and a volunteer. I was there as a writer. So that was really the, the, the first and maybe the most important lesson was how to win trust from people who have reason not to trust you and, and might feel that you can't possibly understand them. Then there's all the mechanics and the technical side of it and arranging interviews. And in a place like Iraq, all of this was immeasurably harder because of the danger and because of the incredible fear and, and hostility in so many different situations. That I just learned as I went um, on the job and um, probably made a hundred mistakes and always felt like a bit of an imposter because I was new at it and there were plenty of people around me, maybe like you, Simon, who were more seasoned at it, who'd been doing it longer. I've always felt it was a great lack on my part that I'd never worked for either a newspaper or a wire service because I would have been forced to learn some of those really fundamental but essential skills like filing on deadline, on a very tight deadline and uh, finding a source really quickly um, I, even to this day, I feel as if I'm always stumbling through the early going of whatever I'm working on and taking forever to find things that other people would have found in a matter of hours. So I think having come at journalism more through fiction and essays um, and memoirs is a bit of a handicap because some things just don't quite come naturally to me. Some of the fundamentals that maybe should be, you know, should, I should know them better. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the award-winning journalist and author George Packer. As you may have guessed, it's time for the next instalment of our new segment. In this segment, we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. They answer one of three questions. What's a piece of advice you wish you'd had at the start of your career? When is a time you failed? And what's the most important trait that someone in your profession can have? Their answers weren't included in the main interviews that Simon and Rachel did with them, so hopefully they give you some fresh insight into the careers of some of the brilliant guests that we've had on. So, without further ado, here's the journalist, Shirin Kali, on a time in her career she failed. I would probably say that there are a few pieces that I look back at that I wrote early in my career where I wonder whether I could have been a bit kinder to the people that I was profiling. Um, often when you're starting out, you really want to be very caustic and have great observations and be incredibly insightful. And then as you get older, I think you realise that you should possibly give people the benefit of the doubt a bit more. And that's one thing I try to do really consciously now is be incredibly empathetic and really try and take people in good faith wherever possible. That was Sharon Carley. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with George Packer. Hi, 
How much time did you spend in Iraq in those years and what was the process leading up to the publication of The Assassin's Gate in 2005? I went there six times um, and each time I spent uh, around a month, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more. So, you know, the New Yorker didn't have a bureau there, so there was no way for me just to go and stay. To have a bureau meant having a militia. Um, The New York Times had a militia. They had the most fortified um, news bureau in the world. It was like the, a, a, a consulate in some war-torn country with, with multiple layers of checkpoints and armed guards and even a machine gun nest on the roof. So to really work in Iraq, you needed a tremendous amount of infrastructure. I would dive in for a month at a time and rely on the kindness of my colleagues and the New York Times, even though I was somewhat of a rival, they were always incredibly generous and let me uh, sometimes use, uh, stay with them if I had, if there was nowhere safe for me to stay. And over time, it became less and less possible to find a safe place to stay. Um, so each time I started with a vague idea and a few contacts and kind of let my nose lead me to a story that was never completely defined. The first one was really just a big panopticon of the occupation. I knew what I needed was different characters to tell the story. I needed to spend time with an American soldier. And I I found a wonderful captain named John Pryor. I needed to spend time with someone at the occupation headquarters. And I found a really interesting historian turned diplomat named Drew Erdman. I needed to spend time with a variety of Iraqis. And, but each one, it was just being open to whoever I might stumble across and then having an instinct for this person can lead me to an understanding of their world. They know how to talk. They want to talk. Um, they, they may be deceiving and manipulating me, but at least they're willing to spend time with me. And the, there has to be a sort of connection. I, I almost feel I have to like them a little bit. I, I really rarely write about people who I deeply dislike and I don't spend time. I find it very hard to spend time with people I deeply dislike because it, it requires a sort of falseness that eventually I think is going to, um, fall, fall away and be revealed. So, even though, you know, the Shia cleric I wrote about uh, is not someone who, in whose uh, republic I would ever want to live, he was funny. He was a hustler. He was um, loved having me around because he saw me as access to the Americans and to their money, even though I couldn't really help him there. Um, so I guess that in each trip, I found characters who became the center of the story. And the last time I went was 2007, after the Assassin's Gate. And that was the worst, really the worst moment of the war. Baghdad was just a nightmare of sectarian killings, bodies turning up every morning in the streets. Every neighborhood had its own armed checkpoints and it was just so dangerous to do anything. Then I had a particular idea in mind, and that was to write about the Iraqis who worked for the U.S. military and government, because I began to hear stories of threats that they were getting and even some of them being killed. And I wanted to know what are the Americans doing to protect the Iraqis who work for them? And the answer was practically nothing. And that 
made me so angry and so ashamed that that energy drove me to to a whole bunch of interviews in in that last trip um with mostly with Iraqis who had worked with the Americans and in each case I got them to tell me the entire story of their experience of the war so that I could tell the four-year story of the hopes the illusions and the gradual sense of betrayal and abandonment um through about seven or eight Iraqi interpreters and that one maybe is the one I like the best cuz it has the most feeling in it and the most um I think I got closer to those people than to any other people I wrote about in Iraq so that was the last piece I did and in terms of your relationship with the magazine back in New York was it because my understanding is as a staff writer you're you're on contract you're not sort of on staff so like did they insure you and things like that while you were working in a in a difficult place like that and how were you were you expected to produce a certain number of pieces per year and things like that? How did the kind of mechanics of, of that side of it work? Well, The New Yorker has this title staff writer, um, but really it meant, as you say, contract writer with a certain um, commitment from the writer and the magazine every year. If mine was something like 40,000 words a year at a certain dollar rate per word. So if I didn't publish, I didn't get paid. Um, the pay was generous, but it depended on my producing the words. So I was in, like all New Yorker writers, I was in this sort of tenuous position of not quite knowing if I had a future. And this was a year-to-year contract. Um, so, and did I have insurance? No, I didn't. Very few people did. I had no health insurance. I had no life insurance. Um, I think at one point the New Yorker... Um, took out some kind of policy on being evacuated or maybe some kidnapping policy. I mean, I can't even remember what it was, but it was basically would have done me no good in a really, in in a very bad situation. David Remnick would have done everything he could to get me out of trouble. But institutionally, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, structure or support. I was sort of on my own. Eventually, The New Yorker gave me health insurance made me a true employee, a true staff writer, on the strength of those years covering the war in Iraq. And that was a a deal that I was lucky to get from the magazine and um, that made me one of only a few people at the magazine who had that deal. Um, But really during those years in Iraq, I was uh, really kind of on a very thin lifeline and making my own way, finding my own fixers and interpreters and drivers. with the help of colleagues always, but, uh, and without those fixers, I should say, and they were sort of part of the story of that last story I described, without those fixers, I and other foreign correspondents couldn't have spent one hour in Iraq. They not only interpreted for us, but told us you can't go down this road, told us you can stay here half an hour, but not longer, told us this um, militia was friendly yesterday, but they're unfriendly today. I mean, everything you needed to know in order not just to work, but to survive depended on Iraqis. Um, and that was part of my feeling that we owed them everything and we were doing so little for them. And that was the anger that drove that piece called Betrayed. And what motivated you to use some of that material for Betrayed as a play? 
Why did you want to tell the same story in a different format? Well, so as you know by now, I'm a a failed novelist. I may be also a not quite failed playwright, but a uh, someone who always loves loved theater. My hero when I was a kid was, believe it or not, Laurence Olivier. I even wrote him a letter once saying, I want to be just like you. And he wrote me back saying, um, essentially, uh, it's a tough life. So be careful what you wish for. Um, and if you ever come to England, please look me up. He was incredibly nice about it. So I didn't end up being an actor, but I love theater. And when I was working on Betrayed, I somehow was contacted by an off-Broadway theater that basically said, do you have anything? And I realized I did have something. It was just the right timing. And so much of the story I'm telling you is really about timing. Um, Because those voices of the interpreters that I've been hearing were so powerful and stuck in my head so um, poignantly that I felt even in a 16,000 word New Yorker piece, I had not done them justice. I, you know, I had told their story with a lot of quotes and a lot of details, but still I was the one telling the story and I felt they were... They needed to be able to speak directly to a reader or an audience. And when I was asked if I had anything, I realized, yes, I have these interpreters and I should try to tell, have them tell their story by dramatizing it. And so I began to write a play based on the journalism I had just done. And what I can say is the further I got from journalism, the better it became as a play. At first, it was too literal, too close to what I'd actually reported, and even had a journalist character in it who didn't belong there. By the time it opened off-Broadway, which was in January 2008, um, it was very quick, the whole process, and very pleasurable. I loved it. It was a great experience, really. By that time, it, it had become a real play without an intermediate journalist and without too much journalism. The characters had become imaginary figures, although they were all composites of the reporting I had done. And I have to say, it was a good play, and it did really well. And ever since then, I've wondered, why don't I write another play? And the answer is because I I don't have one. But if I had one, I would write it in a heartbeat because I loved writing that play. And each night after the performance... We would have a little session on stage because all these Iraqis were now coming to the United States to escape. Uh, I, I did a lot of work helping them get asylum, writing letters for them. And so I would invite them to the production and they would watch their lives on stage. And then afterward, we would sit and talk on stage about Iraq. And it was a really good and somewhat disturbing experience for the audience because this audience was basically a hardcore anti-war audience. And to hear from Iraqis whose views of the United States and even of the war were pretty complex and by no means purely anti-war forced the audience to think about the experience of the Iraqis and not just the point of view of Americans looking at the war at a distance with horror. 
In terms of more recent developments with you, two things I was particularly interested in was was leaving the New Yorker and moving to the Atlantic, what your interest and motivation for that was, and then where your more recent books, and particularly the Holbrook biography, fitted in. So how did those those two pieces come to pass? Well, first, the Holbrook biography. I was working on The Unwinding, which in some ways is the book I'll probably, if I'm remembered at all, I'll be best known for. Uh, it had, it's about America today and America over the past few decades. And it was a, a sort of early warning sign of Trump coming. It was published in 2013, but people took it, take it now as a somewhat prescient portrait of a country falling apart, uh, institutions in decline, ordinary Americans atomized, alienated, angry, uh, the economy not working. So it was a picture of the country that um, maybe journalists had not focused on enough and that I think put an image and a story in people's minds that has come to pass. The Holbrook book came to me while I was working on that. Basically, he died in 2010. I had known him a bit. I'd profiled him in The New Yorker. His widow offered me his papers. I took them without knowing why. All I knew was I had a chance to get them. I had to decide then and there. For years, I didn't know what to do with them. They sat here in my office in these giant black filing cabinets, kind of glowering at me because I wasn't using them. And finally, I began to read his papers and discovered an incredible character, this diplomat, um, this flamboyant diplomat who had kind of been everywhere from Vietnam to Bosnia to Afghanistan. And he became a character for me. And that allowed me to write the book. I didn't want to write a conventional biography. The whole thought kind of bored me, having to tell you what courses he took in high school and uh, who his college friends were. It just I had no interest in that. What I wanted was to write about the past half century of American foreign policy and history through a really gripping, even mesmerizing character. And again, my background with fiction was crucial here because Holbrook became a kind of, I can't, I won't say I created the character, but the narrator of the, this book is, is an invention and is almost a, a kind of Marlowe-esque witness to the story. It's not a conventional narrative voice of biography. It's the voice of a particular person who's not me and who just seems to have known Holbrook all along and is telling you the story as a long yarn. And that gave me so much energy and fun that I was able to get through the tedium of biography. Um, So that book was a bit of an accident that I turned into something that I was able to make work and make um, good for me as a writer, good, you know, able to use different sides of my writing in ways I hadn't before. That doesn't really have anything to do with my leaving The New Yorker. Um, the, the two kind of happened coincidentally. I left The New Yorker, I'd say for two reasons. One, because I wanted to write more in the vein of Last Best Hope, more political essays, um, more uh, direct. Yeah, the New Yorker has commentary, but really what the New Yorker prizes most is deeply reported narratives, which I love and which I love doing for the New Yorker. Um, but I had kind of 
learn how to do that and always want to learn something new. And if you keep writing the same thing as a, as a writer, you eventually get stale. And I didn't want to get stale. So I wanted to do some new kind of writing. And I also began to feel that maybe my political ideas were a bit out of sync with The New Yorker. I was coming into conflict with what I call just America in Last Best Hope. I was feeling critical of it, feeling it was smothering media, smothering literature. And The Atlantic seemed like a place where it was less oppressive and where there was more room for a variety of points of view. So those two impulses led me to go to The Atlantic, where Jeff Goldberg, who's an old friend of mine, was um, good enough to hire me and where I been working for the last few years, all of which takes nothing away from the incredible education I got and joy I got working with the best journalists in the country at The New Yorker, um, a, an experience that, you know, was the experience of a lifetime. Could you expand a little bit on that point of progressive politics and media and the conflict there? You've um, you've said that you think among young journalists today in particular, there's a sort of hostility to free expression. Could you elaborate? I mean, the word justice is a really important and powerful word. And the idea of justice has come to dominate and define the thinking of a lot of people in my industry, such that if something can be described as undermining justice, um, it is not just criticized, but can be really banished from the discourse by different means. No one is operating as an official censor here, but there's a kind of a groupthink that is reinforced on social media and by the decisions of editors and writers that I found was constricting what was sayable more and more and more. Even though each individual case you could say, well, of course, this is offensive, or of course, this is going to hurt this group, or of course, this doesn't reflect current thinking on social justice, or of course, the terminology has just changed last night, so we don't use words like that anymore. In each case, you could see the vir the virtue of it, and yet the overall effect was to constrict thinking to the point where everyone was censoring themselves. Everyone was constantly asking themselves, can I say this? If I do, will I get in trouble? Will my editor let me? Will the Twitter mob kill me? Will it help my ideological adversaries if I say this? And this kind of thinking, which is so common now, um, partly because of technology and partly, I think, because of this philosophical change in a new generation. This is really being driven, I think, by younger people who, again, have a passion for justice. But that passion for justice has become, I think, an oppressive one and one that is in direct conflict with the the freedom and the latitude um, to experiment, to take risks, even to be wrong, which is necessary for any serious writing to happen. So 
all of that I felt beginning, I'd say around 2016, 2015, and it got stronger and stronger, and it continues to get stronger and stronger. It's not relenting. People my age keep waiting for it to blow over. It's not going to blow over. It is a new and important and dominant mental atmosphere that uh, is going to be with us for, for a long time, and you just have to f- try to find the little spaces you can where you can exercise your, your, your voice, your freedom, without that mute button that's in all of us that we're constantly about to push. I thought the um, the schools piece that you sent over for the Atlantic was really interesting, both in the way it, it kind of engaged with some of those ideas about um, uh, progressive authoritarianism, but also in, in the form, so the moulding of, of memoir, of writing about yourself and your own experiences. Was that What was the experience of doing that? And then also after that piece came out, kind of wrestling with, with some of these hot-button topics, what was the, the feedback and the response to that like? It was generally terrible. It was actually not entirely terrible. It was a, an incredibly widely read piece. Uh, it was like number one on the Atlantic site for a week, which is unusual. So people read it. And I think it, I know it resonated with a lot of people because I heard from them. I heard from them privately. I got emails. I got letters. Um, people saying, you've spoken for me. This is similar to what my child's experience is like in the schools. They're being a bit indoctrinated now. Your description of, you know, of the oppressive atmosphere of, of this new progressivism really rings a chord. But publicly, I was pilloried. Um, I was a, really maybe the most hated person on Twitter for about 18 hours, which is about as long as that ever lasts. Um, I mean, my wife and I kind of were wondering, what can we take a walk around the neighborhood? You know, are we going to run into someone who's going to shake a finger at us? It was a really sobering experience to feel that hated and that reviled. I was called a segregationist, a white supremacist, um, a privileged white male. Basically, writing from my experience, which is something back to homage to Catalonia, I've always thought is a kind of necessary test of honesty. Are you willing to expose yourself uh, and the maybe the, the complexity and even the ugliness of some of your thoughts in order to test them, in order to understand them, and in order to connect with other people um, by showing us all a, dil- a dilemma that we're in? I discovered that that's no longer... It's it's a dangerous thing to do. You're making yourself vulnerable. You're essentially showing your throat and saying, if you've got a knife, you know, you might want to do it. Because rather than, at least it's honest, what you get is, can you believe this white male talking about himself as if he matters, as if his experience matters? So that the authority of personal experience, which is part of, I think, of nonfiction writing as long as you are able to see yourself truly, critically, no longer matters. Now what matters is which group you belong to and what point of view you come to, to your personal experience with. You get credit if you belong to a certain group or if you have a certain point of view. If you don't, if you don't belong to that group, if you have a different point of view, your honesty gets you nothing except abuse. So that was a pretty revealing experience about 
the atmosphere in which I wrote the piece and about which I wrote the piece. It was a confirmation of the piece. Uh, it showed me how little tolerance there was, um, how little generosity, how, you know, how little intellectual openness there, there was when a piece that really is not, it's not a screed, it's actually a kind of a, a thoughtful meditation with lots of self-criticism in it, that didn't, you know, that doesn't work anymore. We're coming up towards the end of our time, but um, as a sort of final question from me, how does it work with pieces that are a quick turnaround? You sent us a recent piece about the evacuation of Kabul. Um, how do you structure them? How long does it take you to write them? How long does it take to fact check, edit that all that process? It's a really good question. These are all really good questions, by the way. Um, I wrote that piece about two Afghan interpreters trying to get out of Afghanistan after the fall of Kabul um, on an airplane. It was about a eight hour flight. And um, I started as soon as we took off and I finished just before we landed. I uh, used um, two long interviews I'd had with these two Afghans as the basis for the piece along with readings I'd done and, and thoughts I'd had. And I sent it to my editor as soon as we landed and I had an internet connection and I heard back immediately and then I said I'm going to be unavailable as of you know noon tomorrow so we need to get this up and it immediately went into both edits and copy edits fact checking I mean they did not do what the New Yorker has always done with printed pieces which is to call those two Afghans and check every last thing I said about them or quoted them saying that no longer happens on this schedule. It's impossible. So I would say fact checking suffers. Um, but given that I had taken careful notes, I didn't worry too much about them because now I do take notes. Um, and yeah, the piece was up less than 24 hours after I filed it. So I'm not quite at Reuters <laughs> speed, Simon, but, um, it it feels more like uh, the real journalism that I you know have always admired and never felt I did all that well uh, or all that fast um, and and it also has the structure and the detail and the feeling that I think every worthwhile piece of journalism should have. This, I think, is, is the genuine final question because uh, we are right against the limit. But it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it interfaces with people's writing lives. <laughs> and you alluded to this earlier about this period where you were you're doing these, these adjunct jobs and kind of picking your way through then. Since that period in your life, since you, you moved to writing journalism, how has it worked financially and how have you, was it still, did it continue to be hand to mouth or, you know, be, be as candid or as guarded as you want, but we, th we think it's kind of important to, to ask about this stuff. I do too. I think it's important. I had a, about um, five years as a, basically a freelance journalist um, from just before I moved to New York to uh, when I was hired by the New Yorker. And I made a good living in those years. I was working a lot and I was single and I was um, able to travel or to produce quickly. And um, and then the New Yorker hired me and immediately I had an annual salary based on a word count, but an annual salary that was more money than I ever expected to make from writing. And that went 
gradually but steadily upward for many years until finances made it harder for the New Yorker to give raises, um, although they never totally stopped. So I have made a better living as a journalist than I ever expected to make um, as a writer. Books are harder. You can get a good advance, but you know you work for years and years and the advance is gone by, that part of the advance is gone by the time the book comes out. It's, I've made money on books. Um, they've sold pretty well, never like hotcakes, but really the steady income of journalism has given me a, a kind of security that um, is, I mean, it's dangerous because you can get complacent, but it's also necessary because you don't have to worry all the time. You don't have to think, maybe I should take an assignment that I don't particularly like or that I think is kind of not very serious. You can basically do what you want. And I've been able to do what I want while making a good living, which is just a remarkably lucky um, way to, to have a career as a writer. And I know it's a rare one, more and more rare. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thanks very much, George, for your time and for your candor and all the very best for your future projects. I really enjoyed talking to you both. Thank you. That was the Always Take Notes interview with George Packer. He's not on social media, but his latest book, Last Best Hope, is published by Vintage. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your main takeaway from the interview with George? I really enjoyed the interview. Uh, I've been an admirer of his journalistic work for a long time and I'd met up with him briefly in New York before, so it was excellent to have him on the show. Um, he was kind of fascinating, particularly in taking this this sort of, I don't know if polemic is the right word, but this sort of extended pamphlet mode, almost a kind of 18th century mode and applying it to the modern times. I also think he's quite an interesting voice and in that he comes very much from a sort of, New York liberal Milo, but casts a sort of critical eye and sort of wry eye, at least on on that world and on some of its pieties. And I was just also interested on some of the kind of craft and technical stuff of of how he does his work. And and interesting too as well that he'd um you know he'd had a, a shot at being a novelist uh, and moved away from that as well as a playwright. Indeed, yes. Um, it was fascinating to hear him talk about his literary influences. Um, and making the most of lockdown and um, I feel like we didn't really scratch the surface of his sort of Pulitzer nominations which is I guess a testament to how much other subjects how many other subjects we had to talk about um, but a obviously very accomplished uh, writer in in many different formats. I thought it was also interesting that he he talked about kind of how he had to go to New York to, to sort of break into that world that he was up in in Boston and it wasn't it wasn't kind of working, but it was like getting getting geographically, at least in, in sight of that world, was, was important to break in. But anyway, a really, really interesting episode. Um, anyway, Rachel, what have you been up to? 
I'm fresh from a fortnight away, so I've been doing lots of reading, but also going to museums and um, you know various other things. So that was very enjoyable. Um, but looking forward to getting stuck into some to some writing projects. I've now had time to research while I've been away. Um, how about you? Um, I've also been away. Um, I was in the mountains for a bit, which was excellent and, and good to get away. I'm um, uh, busy, actually. I'm closing closing a big 1843 piece um, and writing a proposal for another one and, and stuff like that. So um, juggling various balls as ever, but, but good to be busy. No rest for the wicked, really. Very little. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram under Always Take Notes. On Twitter, under Take Notes Always. Our crowdfunding page on Patreon is under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with us via our website or leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye. Thank you.